After a weekend of sunshine and decent weather, we're all feeling great. After a terrible January, February is looking up. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, who all enjoyed the sun in some way, shape, or form and are bringing their sunny personalities to this news discussion. <laughs> Laura's up first. What does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine recommend to stop angry gamblers from endangering college athletes whose performances cost the betters money? Laura, I guess this was completely foreseeable, but you do have to do something to help the students. Right. Both DeWine and the NCAA want to get rid of prop bets in collegiate sports. That's some of the nitty gritty in the moment stuff where you're betting on the next move that someone's going to make rather than the full game. So sports bettors would remain able to make those bets on the outright winners. They could bet against the spread. They could do over-under bets in the NCAA college games. But they couldn't bet on the outcomes of the specific plays, like a player scoring on a particular drive in football or a player hitting a certain number of three-pointers in a game of basketball, the stuff that changes and is very specific to individual players. DeWine has never been a huge fan of sports gambling, which, by the way, we talked about last week, $7.7 billion industry in Ohio in just the last year. He made this request to the Ohio Casino Control Commission alongside the NCAA president named Charlie Baker. He said the prop bets or Baker said the prop bets increase the risk of insider information being solicited or leveraged and manipulating betting markets or enticing bettors to bet on the, or sorry, players to bet on themselves. And this request is opening a public comment period that continues until next Monday. There's, there's also the danger. You, you got guys that bet money on something happening. They're sitting there watching sports. They're probably having something to drink. The kid does not do what the better wanted and they start firing off the angry threats, which is just not okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think, Mike DeWine's doing the right thing. You've got to build in some protection. There was originally talk, uh, there was talk at some point in the whole betting discussion of outlawing betting on college sports in Ohio for these very reasons, that the college sports are supposed to be pure and, and amateur, although not really amateur. Uh, and it's interesting that one year in, you've got to start talking about protecting the students. Right. He based this idea on threats made by losing betters against University of Dayton basketball players. So it's not like this is just an idea. Apparently, it actually happened. And I, I see what he's saying. These are kids. I mean, they are not professional athletes. They're not grownups. And if they are getting threatened, that is a huge problem. It's only a matter of time before the money persuades some of these athletes to do the wrong thing. And so... Keeping this as tightly controlled as possible is a good idea. Good for Mike DeWine and good for the NCAA for backing him up on this because they, they generally are all about the money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The next Ohio governor's race is three years away, but how is Lieutenant Governor John Husted already beginning to distance himself from the current governor, Mike DeWine, who is not very popular with the fringe Republicans who decide primary races? Lisa? 
Yeah, the 56-year-old Lieutenant Governor Husted is an early front-runner in the 2026 gubernatorial race, and he's starting to distinguish himself from Mike DeWine just a little bit in a couple of areas. Of course, this will be his second attempt at governor. He tried to run in 2018, but he dropped out to become uh, DeWine's running mate. He's already raised $3.3 million last year from high-profile donors and business leaders, but he has broken with DeWine on a couple of things. One of them was the anti-transgender gender bill. Um, He said that Houston said he would hope that SAFE Act would become law on social media one day before DeWine vetoed that legislation, which was, of course, overridden in the uh, General Assembly. And then uh, Houston endorsed Donald Trump two days after Trump called DeWine a stiff for vetoing the legislation. And as we know, DeWine has been booed at at rallies with Trump. So uh, Baldwin Wallace University political science professor Tom Sutton says, Lieutenant governors bear the legacy of the administration they serve, good or bad. And they say a negative perception of the governor is your record, like it or not. So I think that's why Husted is trying to uh, distinguish himself. Also, in a New York Times article, Husted's support of a bill requiring social media users 16 and younger to get parental permission, um, but he you know, I don't know whether DeWine supported that or not. I think he's against it. But he said, though, that DeWine's support will be a big boost. And DeWine has already said Houston will make a great governor. It's sad to see Houston pandering to the Trump fringe, though. I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing that in the Senate race. Bernie Moreno and Frank LaRose have been gross and they're and they're just sick of fancy to the former president. And, and it, Brent Larkin wrote a terrific piece about it over the weekend. And it's sad because Ohio should stand for more. J.D. Vance was on TV this weekend I heard from all sorts of people who saw him and said, my God, this is embarrassing. He is a puppet for Trump. So you would hope in the governor's race, you wouldn't see that. You know, Dave Yost has not been a Trump panderer. He's going to run. You haven't seen much of Bob Sprague. I don't know if he's a term. And, and here you go with Houston. And the sad thing is, is you know, I talked to Andrew Tobias about calling Houston a front runner, which we both said is legitimate because he is lieutenant governor and he's raising some serious money. The other thing is anywhere you go in Ohio, when you talk to business people, they they believe Mike DeWine and John Houston have been the best economic development force we've seen in years. It's not just that they have a machinery to do it. They get personally involved. You talk to anybody in Cleveland and we're the de- Democratic you know, stronghold. If they put a call into those guys, they call back and do everything possible to help the projects. And that's going to count when it's fundraising time. I think John Houston's going to raise a lot of money because he has been mm-hmm. positive for that. So why pander to Trump? And why this early? I mean, who knows what's going to happen between now and the election for governor? I mean, Trump could be wearing an orange jumpsuit by then, or he may not be the nominee. But uh, yeah, this is, it's interesting. And I get it. You know, Lieutenant Governor does live in the governor's shadow. And Houston did say that, you know, he actually wanted a looser approach to the COVID response and shutdown, but he didn't admit that until the pandemic was over. But Ohio loves DeWine. I mean, people voted for him in very high numbers and they trust him because I think Ohio is centrist. It's just it it was a it's a sad development to see him pandering because I don't think he needs to. Mm -hmm. And he could stand for his own. Um, He's got another problem. He's not the most likable guy. He's not the most personable guy. And he's going to have to overcome that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Was the state ready for this? How much have private school vouchers increased since lawmakers opened them up to nearly everyone? Layla, big numbers here. Really big numbers. Laura Hancock tells us that on account of increased eligibility, eligibility and and an expansion of the cash amount of vouchers, the number of applications for Ohio-funded scholarships for private schools has more than tripled this school year over the last school year. So far, the state has paid out $166.9 million for private school tuition this year in one of the voucher programs that the legislature expanded. And we can expect that number to rise because private schools typically collect tuition on a monthly basis. So not all applications to the program have been submitted or granted. Parents have until the end of June to submit voucher applications. So far in this school year, 82,610 students have been awarded scholarships to private schools in one of the five voucher programs that have been expanded. Last year, families of 24,320 kids received vouchers. That's a gigantic increase. And in in addition to those numbers, more than 8,500 applications that were received are were in need of correction or were incomplete, so those could be considered pending applications. Laura Hancock points out that the Department of Education Workforce has changed the way it's reporting the dollar amount paid out. It seems like the change has been done in a way to perhaps confuse the public. (laughs) Previously, it reported out how much money the state had committed to private school vouchers this school year based on approved student applications. But those figures were questionable because they made it appear that the state was on pace to go over the $397.8 million that the General Assembly had set aside for vouchers this school year. So now the agency only reports how much it's paid out rather than its total commitments to date. Yet the number of applications approved has more than doubled. So it's hard to get a handle on how much these vouchers will cost in total this school year. There are a few topics that generate the level and depth of thought that we get from readers whenever we have a story. So this weekend, there were a lot of people writing in about vouchers and they're on both sides, although there's a great concern everywhere about how this has been done with no real discussion, that that this is really quietly inserted into the budget. There weren't a lot of hearings. There wasn't a lot of debate. And it is a fundamental change in the way we approach education. For parents of private school kids, this is a break. This is a financial break that's helping them pay for schools. But everybody's worried about the long-term effect on public schools and the inequality that will exist if the public schools get dumped on. That's right. You know, I found really troubling in this in the story, the, uh, um, the reporting from ProPublica that Laura Hancock mentioned that found that parents with kids in private schools were being pressured to apply for vouchers even if they were against it on principle, and that schools pressured lower-income parents to get the scholarships first before asking for financial aid, and that some schools appeared ready to, to raise tuition because the increase could be absorbed by parents now that the state was paying a larger chunk of the tuition. I mean, that that's all such such troubling unintended consequences of uh, of this policy. Yeah, we're going to look at that because we've heard from somebody who had that happen. They, I think they were getting a $6,000 voucher and the school raised the price that they had to pay themselves by half of that. So they're saying, you're still ahead 
because you're getting a three thousand dollar break and they're saying the state didn't do this to enrich you the state did this to help the parents but again this is the result of having no discussion there's all sorts of things that can go wrong with this because the legislature and it's rushed to do it because they hate public schools did not have the hearings and put in the guardrails and so we're going to be looking at this because i think that's what's happening is the private schools are the ones glomming onto this cash mm-hmm. and it's not helping Ohioans the way it was intended. Well, and I think they're, you know, separates kids into winners and losers. The winners get the private school, you know, vouchers and the losers have to stay in public school and, you know, private schools can cherry pick. I know. I know. There's all sorts of problems with it. Look, a great number of people want it. They want the break. But we should have had a discussion. We should have the discussion. There should be hearings about this. But with our gerrymandered legislature and the people leading it, they have no interest in that discussion because they're probably in the pockets of private school industry. That's the way Columbus works is the industry determines what happens, not the people. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Several times now, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost has rejected a proposed ballot initiative involving voting because the title and the language don't come close to being accurate. Rather than fix the flawed proposal, backers are taking a new tactic. Laura, what is it? I don't know how original this tactic really is in politics, because if you don't like your outcome, you can sue about it. And they are suing. They say Dave Yost is abusing his power as attorney general. Their lawsuit is asking the Ohio Supreme Court to force Yost to approve this petition language. They say his office only has legal authority to determine whether the title accurately summarizes the proposal, not to comment on it or reject the proposal over it. But this is called the Ohio Voter Bill of Rights. And when we talked about it before, we saw the issue with this because it's not just it's it's not a bill of rights. It's expanding voting access. And so it's pretty clear that this is a title that people would like and if you didn't read the entire summary, you might not understand what it's about. Yost took to social media which I thought was interesting because usually public officials hide behind this, like no comment on pending litigation, but Dave Yost wanted to talk about it. He said the voters deserve a no spin zone when asked to sign a petition and he aims to give it to them. Yeah. And he's right. I'm surprised they're going this route because what they're producing is not accurate. It's not doing, I mean, Yost's letter to them explaining why they didn't meet the rules was based on logic and common sense. I don't get these folks. I mean, this is an overreach. The stuff in the bill is going to be portrayed by those who don't like it as a move toward voter fraud. The the photo ID being the number one, they want to get rid of the photo ID requirement. And and Ohioans probably are not going to trust that. And here they are. They're being told, look, just just do it right. Just be accurate in what this is about. And instead of fixing it, they're going to the court. Supreme Court's given Yost till this morning to respond. I just don't see the Supreme Court going against what Dave Yost did because it seemed to follow the law and be logical, right? Also, let's point out the Supreme Court is Wade and the Republican side right now. And so they're not necessarily going to give a fair shake to something like this. But that said, I, I, I don't really like I think Yost is in the right here. And this was the second time he's rejected this, the petition, which, you know, they need to get hundreds of thousands of signatures and they need to do it by July if they want to get it on the fall ballot. I just I don't get 
they're they're thinking here that this is going to end up working. And this is the Ohio Organizing Collaborative and the uh, Black Civil Rights Groups like the NAACP. And I agree these are things are that we should be talking about, like early voting hours, multiple locations for in-person and ballot drop-off boxes. But I don't think calling it the Ohio Voter Bill of Rights is the way to go about that. And they're being very stubborn. They're, they're not fixing it. They're pushing too far. They don't like what we say about them on the podcast because they get anonymous notes saying we're bad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, why is Senator Sherrod Brown concerned about foreigners owning Ohio farmland and what's he trying to do about it? Yeah, he's got a bill. He's a co-sponsor of the Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act improvements of 2024. He wants to address gaps in how the Agriculture Department tracks foreign-owned USA farmland. It would require the USDA to collaborate with the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. and also use Farm Service Agency data to find those who are failing to disclose foreign-owned land. He said if the bill is passed, they could use that data to crack down and or ban farmland sales to foreign entities. He says this is not the last step and it will help inform future legislation. So I think the thing that got under his under his uh, skin was that he said there was a Chinese billionaire that bought 200,000 acres of farmland in Oregon. He says that makes him the second biggest landholder in the U.S. and we didn't even know about it and he thinks it's a big social, uh, it's a national security issue. Also uh, Ty Higgins with the Ohio Farm Bur- Bureau says a half million acres in Ohio are owned by foreign entities. That's about 2.5% of agricultural land. Most of it in Ohio is uh, owned by Germany, Canada, and the Netherlands. Canada uses it for forestry. Uh, Germany and the Netherlands are using the land for wind and solar development. But Higgins says once this land leaves the hands of Ohio farmers, it's gone for good and we can't get it back. It's not gone for good. It could always be sold back. I'm, I'm, I don't, I've read the story a couple of times and I just don't see what the threat is here. I mean, actually foreign ownership in American land gives people a vested interest in us being successful as a country, doesn't it? What, what's the downside to some Chinese investors owning Ohio farmland? I, other than national security, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, th- I think Saudi Arabia owns a bunch of land that they were, you know, growing, uh, that I guess they were raising cattle on American land. So I don't know. I'm kind of am- ambivalent about it. Yeah, it seems like a, a xenophobic dodge. Sherrod Brown's running for reelection and stand up to China sounds like a good campaign pitch. I just, he hasn't made the case for why foreign investment is a bad idea. I think he wants more transparency. I don't know, you know, he, I don't know if he's, I think he stopped short of an outright ban, but you know, here, you know, they're buying land and they're doing it under the radar. Now that is a problem. Well, but let's face it. There's a lot of land that is not transparent because we've created all sorts of trusts that buy the land and you have no idea who's behind it. I'd be all in favor of complete transparency on who actually owns property uh, but but it has nothing to do with foreigners. It's just the idea of we should be able to find out who owns what. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We are a month away from what could be another very special moment in Brexville. Layla, greatest story of the weekend for lifting your mood. What is it? What's at stake? <laughs> yeah, the Brexville Broadview Heights Bees gymnastics team 
will be going for their 21st consecutive state title next month. That's the longest high school championship winning streak in gymnastics in the nation. The the gymnasts who are on this team charged with carrying forward this legacy, they weren't even born when the winning streak began in 2004. And yet the pressure is on them. And we all know how intense the pressure can be in the sport of gymnastics, even without a two decades long record to uphold. This team of 18 high school girls are now entering their postseason. It's going to culminate with the state championship on March 2nd. But beyond the drama inherent in being the 20-year defending champs at the heart of the story is a gymnastics dynasty. Gym World in Broadview Heights has been the home base for the Bees for many decades. It's run for many years by Joan Gannum and her late husband, Ron. Today, their daughter, Maria Schneider, coaches the team out of Gym World. And she has continued their coaching philosophy that puts the child before the sport. One of the key elements of this team's success is in their approach to mental health. They have created a program that they call Psychobabble, where the girls are encouraged in kind of a classroom-like setting to talk and learn coping strategies for, you know, the immense amount of pressure that they're under as both gymnasts and students. The girls told reporter Hannah Drown that they get so much out of this approach and it goes a long way toward insulating them against the pressure of carrying forward this 20-year-old legacy that they've inherited. I can't imagine that pressure. The, the, you, because now, look, all, all of these things will eventually come to an end. Uh, there was another high school in Cuyahoga County that went deep in another sport. I think it was 25 years and, and lost finally two years ago. And nobody wants to be that team even though it's completely acceptable. I mean, to win every year for as long as they've won is amazing beyond anything we can describe. Uh, and they must feel that pressure. And for a kid to feel that pressure, it's great that they address the mental health aspects the way they do. I agree. You know, it's interesting in, in interviews I've seen with Joan Gannum, she really does try to soften the, the effect of that pressure in everything she says. She tries to say, you know, it's going to come to an end eventually. And when it does, that just means that it gives us something to work toward the following year. It gives us a goal. It helps make us stronger. You know, losing to other teams makes us a more ambitious team. And I can just tell that there's so much uh, going on behind the scenes when it comes to that mental health piece. We're going to be following along through the postseason. We plan on having stories about the history of this team's championship seasons, the athletes that have passed through that program and have gone on to greatness in college or beyond. And we'll have more about that psychobabble program and how that works. And we're going to go deep on the Ganem Gymnastics dynasty and their coaching philosophy. So there's there's more to come on this. They came close last year. There were the, the description in the story of the moment that they had last year where they, in the finals, were up against it and then came through, kind of gave credit to that whole psychobabble, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were. And gymnastics is one of those sports where you're a team, but you're an individual who really needs to bring it home for the team. And I think that's where the pressure really mounts. And there was a story in within this piece about one of the athletes it was on the vault. They really needed to nail it. And she ran past the vault twice. If you do it a third time, it's an automatic zero. And I can't even imagine. It gives me chills to think of the pressure she was under. And finally, she nailed it. And she brought home the score they needed. And the, and then it was just, you know, 
set in stone with the next uh, the next gymnast who went. They they got they brought home the the trophy. Twenty years in a row. Hannah Drown's <laughs> story is just beautiful. If you haven't read it, look for it on Cleveland.com. It's worth your time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Steve Litt heard from people about the decision to scrap the last two Hewlett unloaders in existence and how that decision came to be made. Laura, people feel really strongly about this. What did he hear? He heard a whole gamut of feelings. And I love that Steve compared them to the stages of grief because some people are in denial. (laughs) Some are deeply sad. Some have accepted. Somebody is bargaining with far-fetched solutions. So this is very meaningful to a lot of Clevelanders. The Hewlett's were a Cleveland invention from a guy named George Hewlett. And these were 100 ton cranes that towered over nearly every Lake Erie port by the turn of the 20th century. They unloaded iron ore from ships into train cars, and they they revolutionized the industry, made it so much faster to work. And they lasted for about 80-ish years when self-unloading boats became standard on the Great Lakes. So these massive guardians of the lakes were scrapped everywhere. There are only two remaining and they've been rotting on Whiskey Island for two decades now. And the idea originally was to restore them. And some people are really still hanging on to that, but it'd be very expensive. It'd take up a lot of space. And the port is saying that's not in the plans anymore. I, when you look at video of these things, what really strikes you is because they're enormous is the mm-hmm. grace which which they move. It's a, it's it was it, they were, I can't believe how smoothly they moved and the majesty of seeing them. You can't recreate that just by putting one there because it's not going to be moving. I think having some kind of scale working model with a video in the background would be much more effective at showing people what these are. You can find the videos. People have them on YouTube and you could see what they, what they look like. What are the, they were just mesmerizing. I imagine if you were in their presence. And also the fact that it wasn't just one, right? They were working in concert with pairs and up to, I don't know how many, we had four, four yeah. here. And so they worked together and it would have looked very graceful, like, you know, like it was being conducted. And so people have, in Ashtabula, that was a big port town, they have a part of a bucket and an arm at their museum with a plaque that explains it. But I agree that it's hard to imagine what these look like. I have zero memory of them at all. At, and, you know, I grew up not that far from here. So for a whole new generation to even understand what this would look like. And think about how mesmerizing it is to watch a Laker on the river, right? How they, they manage those turns. It's just this big machinery and nature is very cool. At one point when they were developing North coast Harbor, they talked about putting a bucket arm next to the steamship, William G. Mather. That never happened. There are drawings of it, the idea. And so some people are calling this a betrayal. Some people have said it's just time to move on. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the bucket arm does it. I don't think that shows the majesty of it. I think it's just a big chunk of metal. But we'll see. They're they're going to scrap most of it because there's trees grown through it, and it really has deteriorated. the uh, The memories will be what we have. You're listening to today in Ohio. We're at the anniversary of the East Palestine train disaster. Lisa, what did reporter Jake Zuckerman 
find on the ground when he visited to talk with the residents there. Yeah, he found that uh, most of the people, if not all that he talked to, believe that their ongoing symptoms are related to that February 3rd derailment and burn off of hazardous chemicals after the accident. Most common complaints are skin rashes, upper respiratory issues like cough, nose and throat irritations, nosebleeds, and also shortness of breath. He also found several people who mentioned a sweet chlorine bleachy smell that really comes out when it's hot or when it rains. And one lady said it smells like a pool, but kind of sweet. Norfolk Southern uh, Brian Long said air monitoring is ongoing. They've taken 115 million air and soil samples, both by Norfolk Southern and the U.S. Environmental Protection uh, Administration. 600 homes have been tested and they found no actionable contaminant levels. The Ohio Health Department in February of March of last year, they found uh 528 people within a two-mile radius of the site, 94% of them reported new or worsening symptoms like headaches, um, uh, 71, 61% had anxiety, 53% had coughing spells, and they're going to do a resurvey this year to see if that's improved. He talked to a couple of residents in depth, Jessica Connard, who lived right next to the tracks. She said that those living closest to the site should be relocated and supported financially if they can't do so and have exposure-related medical costs covered for life. Um, she says, you know, we need to have home air monitoring. Um, some residents that Jake talked to for said that they their homes were never tested by anybody, the state, the Fed, or Norfolk Southern, and they feel like they're stuck in contaminated houses. There's a disconnect here with with what you're hearing broadly from people that say, when I go away, I can breathe, I feel good, I come back, and I can feel it immediately what's here. And the, the, yet the air monitoring keeps saying, nope, nothing to see here, folks. I wonder if this is going to end up being a case like Centralia, Pennsylvania, where they had the underground mine fire that pretty much destroyed the town and everybody got bought out. I think the same thing happened at Love Canal in New Jersey, right? The whole neighborhood got bought out. It, there's something wrong. You have all these people that say, when I'm here, I can't breathe. I get hives. I get something's wrong. And, and you know, you can't say the whole town is psychosomatic. So, What's going on? It feels like the testing is inadequate, that if people have blotchy patches on their skin, why aren't there people looking at that and trying to diagnose what's causing it? I don't know. I mean, there is a clinic there. Are people going to the clinic? Uh, you know, I feel like there's a whole lot of mistrust in the government in East Palestine. Another person that they talked to, Ashley McCollum, she's been living in hotel rooms uh, with her boyfriend and her son and dogs. She has to go to her house for mail, and that's when she feels the symptoms. But she refused testing of her home shortly after the accident. She said she didn't want all these people in her home. She didn't like the open-ended contract. So she didn't have testing, but she wants testing. So, and some people are calling for independent testing. So it's, it's quite a conundrum. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine the frustration of being told repeatedly it's in your head. There's nothing wrong. And yet I feel like I can't breathe or I feel like my sinuses get clogged. When you, when you listen to these folks, they're describing real symptoms that they're feeling and they just can't get any real answers. It's a, it was a sense of frustration. Jake did a very nice job covering that, mm -hmm. bringing that to life. Mm -hmm. And you just don't know where this goes.
You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Monday episode. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. We'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.